Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? Yes, I'm all in. Awesome. Happy Father's Day. Appreciate our fathers so much. We don't necessarily follow tradition always here at Oldham Lane where you do a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day. Uh, we are actually starting a series this morning that will continue throughout the summer. It's entitled, as you can see, Summer on the Mount, as we are looking and highlighting the uh, major teachings from Jesus's greatest sermon. It reminds me of my daughter, Keely, when she was in the third grade, decided to play travel basketball. She had never played basketball before. She was a decent softball and soccer player, so I guess the coaches thought it would translate into basketball. Not so much. Her team was terrible. They lost every game. I think they uh, maybe only scored two points all season. She was a post player, which would require some aggressiveness. And to be honest, she didn't have a lot of rascal in her. She didn't have the assertiveness she needed to play that position. But after the first game in which they got pummeled, she was excited. And I couldn't figure it out. And she came up to me all giddy, and I said, why are you excited? She goes, Dad, I didn't commit one foul the whole game. And I said, so what? I think I soured the moment as I told her. I said, Keely, sometimes it's good to foul. I mean, you've got to protect the paint. You've got to show them who's boss. You've got to protect the rim. You've got to let them know that when they come into the lane, they might lose a limb. And you could tell it just went right over her head. I said, I know you're given five fouls, but you can use some of those. And to her, there was no nuance. There was no debating it. Fouling was bad, not fouling is good. You follow the rules, and following the rules in this case meant you don't foul. And I think there are some that look at Christianity much the same way. There's no nuance. You follow the rules. You cross every T, you dot every I, because the last thing you want is for God to catch you on a technicality and you not make it to heaven. Unfortunately, many look at discipleship like that, in order to secure my salvation, I've got to make sure that I'm following the rules down to the letter. Rules are rules, and therefore, you follow them. Now, in Jesus' day and age, that's what the religious leaders believed and taught. They didn't always follow it, but that's what they believed and taught. And it's interesting that when Jesus had a crowd gathered and had a golden opportunity to speak to the masses... He didn't start with rule-keeping. He starts with the attitude of the heart. Notice what he says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great." For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In 1965, during their fourth U.S. tour, Keith Richards sat up in bed at the Harrison Hotel in Clearwater, Florida, and he wrote down 
five words that would change the landscape of rock music. In fact, these five words became a part of a song that was listed as the number one song on VH1's top 100 of all time. Anybody know what the song is? You know, the band's Rolling Stones. The five words, I can't get no satisfaction. It was supposed to be a commentary on U.S. culture. It's probably a commentary on the culture of Jesus' day as well. Many people couldn't find satisfaction. Many people can't find satisfaction today because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. The Beatitudes are a lot of things, but first and foremost, they are an upside-down way of thinking, a backwards calling, a reverse image of what we commonly think of when we think of what it means to be blessed. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus describing what the kingdom looks like and what citizens of this kingdom are to look like as well. Remember, Jesus' favorite subject to teach on was the kingdom. He came bringing the kingdom, and here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, he lays out the specifications of his kingdom, and he starts by redefining what it means to be blessed. This isn't about what you are to do so much as it's about what you are to be. It's not about rule following. It's about character development. The kingdom dweller is one who is poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, we're not talking about money here. We're talking about declaring spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit are the ones who are spiritual beggars. They are needy for God. They recognize their spiritual deficiency. Blessed are those who are not ashamed to declare their own spiritual bankruptcy. Poverty of spirit is the recognition that I can do nothing on my own. In fact, Jesus summed it up beautifully in John chapter 5, verse 30, when he stated, I can do nothing on my own initiative. That's it. That's poverty of spirit. And folks, there will be no one in heaven who is not first poor in spirit. Next, Jesus says that the kingdom is for those who mourn. Now, this is not just a reference to earthly sorrow. This is talking more about spiritual deprecation. It's about godly sorrow. When we realize our hopelessness apart from God, it causes us to mourn, coming to terms with our own sinfulness and seeing the consequences that result should cause us to mourn. Becoming poor in spirit leads to mourning, which leads to repentance, which in turn leads to comfort. Conviction comes before conversion. And a real sense of who we are without God must be realized before we can experience the joy of of salvation. We must be poor in spirit, then we must mourn because kingdom people are saddened by what saddens God. You cry at the stuff that others laugh at. Remember when Jesus cried at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? Why did he weep? I mean, it's going to turn out that the funeral for Lazarus is a false alarm, so why is he weeping? He's going to raise him from the dead because he saw what sin does to people, people that he loved. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Death was not a part of the original plan. Death is the enemy. And it caused hurt and pain and sorrow. And that hurt Jesus to his core. In Luke chapter 19, we find Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Why? Well, it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, If you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah was in the people's midst, and they missed out on him. 
They refused a Savior. We as modern-day disciples should be praying, God, give me your heart. May nothing sadden me more than what saddens you. Jesus then moves to meekness. So you have poor in spirit, you have spiritual mourning. You ever notice that the Beatitudes are not random? It's not a random list. There is a logical order and sequence here, and they all build on one another. You start with humility or poverty of spirit, you move to mourning, then you move to meekness. The path to heaven starts with three giant steps down. You see the progression? There's the spiritually destitute who realizes their hopelessness, and so they mourn their spiritual status, which leads to repentance. The result is a change of heart, change of mind, a change of will, a change of direction. They live out God's will. Jesus says, these are the people who are truly blessed. Now, meekness in our culture is often associated with weakness, but there is nothing weak about biblical meekness. You imagine a, a bucking bronco. won't be hard for both. You imagine this bucking bronco like you see in rodeos, and He's trying to get that rider off his back any way possible, trying to buck him off. That's who you were before you became a child of God. You were a bucking bronco. A horse breaker does their best to break the will of that horse, that strong, speedy horse. They don't want to break his speed. They don't want to break his strength because that's useful to him. But the horse breaker seeks to break his will so that he can take that horse and all of its strength and all of its speed and all of its might and use it for good. That's what happens. We were bucking broncos before we came to Christ. Christ breaks us. God breaks our will, and we become useful. Then Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who have humbled themselves before God, those who have mourned, those who have been tamed, are those who are starving for soul food. They crave spiritual nourishment. They are starving for what pleases God. They feast on right things. They may not always like the food that's placed before them. You know, there are certain things that I eat that I don't necessarily like, but they are, are good for me. I know that they're good for me, so I eat them up even though I don't necessarily like to taste them. I'd much prefer chocolate over broccoli, but I know what's better for me. The people who are starving, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they understand what's better for them. They understand what they need to be eating. And therefore, they eat it up so they can grow strong. You know, when you go to a restaurant, you get a menu. And that menu is a written documentation of what they have to offer. You also have someone who comes and who reads the menu to you. So you read the menu yourself. And if you're like me, you know, you can start salivating just by reading the, the contents and thinking about the food that you're going to eat. But then you have a menu expositor who comes over. They're called a waiter or a waitress, and they tell you about the menu, and then they offer a Q&A session afterwards if you have any questions. And so you read the menu, you listen to the menu expositor, and then you leave the restaurant, right? Completely filled. No, obviously not. And it's the same way with what we do here. You come to church with a menu. It's a rather thick menu, right? It's your Bible, and it contains a lot of different foods. You read the menu. You also have an expositor like me who tells you about the menu, who proclaims the menu, and then you walk out, right? No, there's more responsibility to it. You've got to feed on whatever it is that is being offered. And not only what I offer, not only what the church offers, but what you do during the week is you feed yourself. You become a self-feeder. You make certain that you are ingesting 
the food that is placed before you. God doesn't just want you to know about him. He wants you to drink him in, to fill up on him. He wants you to to taste the menu, to taste and see that he is good. He doesn't just want you to know. He wants you to ingest. He wants you to meditate. He wants you to consume and become. You are what you eat, right? I can't get no satisfaction. Well, it's probably because you're filling up on junk food. You need to eat something healthier. What's tasty isn't always what's, what's uh, good for you, and, and what's good for you isn't always what's tasty. You want strong spiritual bones and muscles, then you eat from God's menu. And be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This isn't feeling pity for someone. Jesus isn't talking about feeling empathy or saying, I'll pray for you. This is pity plus action. It's doing our best to remove the misery. And again, this is the opposite of the way culture back then operated and the way culture today operates. Because our first instinct is justice, right? We know all about justice. And we want justice, at least for other people, right? When it applies to other people. We want justice when they offend us. But do you really want justice? I mean, think about all the dumb things you've done. Think of all the ridiculous things you've done. Think about all the dumb choices that you have made in your life. And you want, you want justice? You sure about that? Because there's going to come a day when you need mercy. There's going to come a day when justice is the last thing you want. You're going to want mercy. And on that day, what if God checked your record? In this upside-down kingdom, we leave justice up to God, and we seek to remove the misery that another deserves. Why? Because that's what looks like Jesus. That's what it's all about. Then comes pure in heart. You see how all these characteristics are interrelated? You see how they're like Legos and they just build on top of one another? There's a building going on here. Jesus is stacking these attributes on top of one another. Purity of heart is the natural result of meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The pure in heart are merciful. The pure in heart are the ones who are authentic on the inside. And we understand something about authenticity, don't we? We despise hypocrisy. We've had hints of authenticity in our lives, but we also know what it means to be plastic. We certainly know what it means to be hypocritical at times because we have fallen prey to that as well. Pure in heart, in the original language here, means unmixed, unalloyed, unadulterated. And Jesus talks about it in the negative in Matthew chapter 23 when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may also become clean. You know this, but the Pharisees were all about religious externalism. It was all about the way that they appeared. They were worshiping God for a show. And Jesus says, doesn't matter if you spit shine the exterior, if your heart is still covered in filth. You want a pure heart? Ask God for it. That's what David did. Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You've heard me say this before, but it's like calling up the IRS and saying, hey, will y'all audit me? I just want to make sure I'm giving y'all enough money. No one would ever do that. And that's what David is saying here. God, audit me. Search every nook and cranny of my soul, of my life, and make sure that I am serving you properly because I want to make sure that I'm right before you. 
Be honest with God. Be honest with him about the good and the bad and the ugly. He knows it already anyway. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. A peacekeeper avoids conflict at all costs. So they don't talk about the truth or anything like that. They just try to keep the peace. A peacemaker actively seeks for peace. Peacemakers are bridge builders. They speak the truth in an effort to build a bridge of reconciliation. They actively seek the things that make for peace. For the Jew, peace is shalom. And shalom is a very deep, rich word that means completeness, wholeness, fullness. The source of peace is Jesus. He is shalom personified. When we draw close to him, we experience true shalom. We experience things that make for peace, but peacemaking isn't selfish. It's not just about us. We seek the things that make for peace for other people so that they can have completeness and wholeness and fullness. And the reason why we do that is because that's what Jesus would do. And again, we're striving to be like Christ. He was the Son of God. So therefore, when we actively seek peace, then we become a Son of God. We act like the Son of God. Peacemakers connect to the source of peace, and thus they find wholeness and completeness and fullness in a relationship with the Father. And then finally, Jesus closes out the Beatitudes by claiming that the persecutors are the ones that are, are the ones that are persecuted are the ones that are truly blessed. Those who are willing to be rejected by men in order to be accepted by God, these are the ones who are truly blessed. God will give everlasting joy to those who choose him above all else, even persecution. Jesus was honest enough with his followers to say, you want to follow me? You're going to be treated poorly. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be persecuted. In fact, you might be killed. Our children say all the time, you know, well, that's not fair. Well, whoever said life was fair? Jesus certainly didn't. In fact, he was honest enough with us to say, your life won't be fair if you choose to follow me. But it will always be rewarded. It will always be fulfilling. The world won't appreciate a pure heart or a spiritual hunger. In fact, expect the opposite. In fact, expect that they won't appreciate you. But you're in good company. Because they persecuted the prophets. They killed the prophets who came before me, Jesus says. Look to their example. Follow in their footsteps. Keep your eye on the prize because there is nothing in this world worth trading your kingdom citizenship for. Look, the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of things. But if it's anything, it's a definition. Jesus is defining discipleship and at the same time, he's redefining what it means to be blessed. Jesus lists the things that make for a winning culture. You ever thought about the Beatitudes that way? Because you should. It's a winning formula for the losers of society. Think about the audience that Jesus is speaking to. This is a ragtag group of people that would have been considered the dregs of humanity. The bottom of the barrel in society. These folks can be persecuted by the government without reprisal, with no trial. These are the folks who were always on the brink of starvation. When Jesus talked about do not worry what you'll eat or what you'll wear, he's not talking to people that had a lot of options. 
A working man's wage at this day and time was one denarius. No one got fat on one denarius. A person couldn't turn on the tap in their house and get pure, clean water. You might eat meat once a week, but most of the time you were starving. Children were in the audience. Children could be killed, tossed out with no consequences, no repercussions. And it's to this ragtag group of people that Jesus says, you're the winners. You're the winners. You win in this whole thing. You know who the losers were? The people who thought they were the winners. I mean, how must this have sat with the religious leaders when they heard this? I mean, Jesus completely cuts their legs out from under them. He says to them, you thought you were the winners, but you're not. You're the losers. You're not on the outside looking in. The losers would have thought people with might and affluence and with power and education and religiosity. Those are the winners. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Those are actually the losers. The people with the might and the power and the education and the religiosity, they are the ones who lose in this whole thing. For I say to you, Jesus said, that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders assumed that the kingdom was theirs. They assumed that they were the winners when in fact they were on the outside looking in. The Beatitudes are a proclamation. You ever thought of the Beatitudes that way? You should. They are a proclamation of victory. Jesus is saying, you win. This is a declaration of who wins, which makes no sense, right? Because the winners in that society and in this society are not the ones who are gentle. You don't win by being gentle. You don't win by making peace. You don't win by being poor in spirit. You don't win by weeping. You win by being assertive. You win by pushing your you know, people around, by, by throwing your weight around. You win by stepping on others to climb the ladder. That's how you win. And Jesus says, no, 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 not in my kingdom. That's not how this works. We would understand if Jesus said, blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the mighty. Blessed are those who are assertive. We could understand that. And do you know why? Because that's how we define blessed. That's how we define success in our culture. We thank God that we can worship without persecution, poverty, meekness, uh, mourning. These are not words typically associated with being blessed, but kingdom citizens define blessedness differently. Let me ask you, when you count your many blessings, what do you count? What's the focus? A good education? A good job? A good family? A good church? Those are the things that we consider are blessings. And I don't want to minimize those at all. They're, they are blessings. But Jesus would say, don't just count the good. When you count your blessings, count the pain. Count the hurt. Count the heartache. Name the tears. Name the desperation. Name the struggle because the promises of God are for people who don't have it all together. The promises of God are for those who struggle. We're all limping disciples. This is not survival of the fittest. In fact, it is survival of the least fit. There was a man who was stranded in the desert 
He was on the brink of death. He had to find water immediately or he wasn't going to make it. And he comes upon this shack. And he goes inside and he finds a mason jar filled with water sitting on top of a pump that leads to a well. There's a note on the jar. Do not drink the water. Use it to prime the pump. Well, he didn't know if he could take that risk. I mean, what if the well's dry and you waste the water priming the pump? If he drinks the water, it might could sustain him long enough to give him another day. And so he's got an, an agonizing decision to make, right? So he takes the mason jar filled with water, raises it up to his mouth, and just before he takes a drink, he pours it over the pump. And he begins pumping. And wouldn't you know it, out comes the life-saving water that he so desperately needed. Enough to sustain him for as long as he needed it. Look, I realize that most sermons I give are simply like that mason jar of water. You drink it, by Monday or Tuesday you've forgotten it, and you move on. I get it. I mean, that's, that's part of it. Maybe I need to be more interesting. That's on me, right? However, if you'll take the water and prime the pump, I promise you, it's going to help you more long term. Forget about my sermon this morning. Think about this sermon that we're studying, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous sermon about kingdom, about discipleship, about the winners and losers, about redefining blessed. Think about this sermon and don't just drink it and forget about it. Use it to prime the pump so that going forward, today and onward, it gives life to your life. It sustains you and helps you because as a kingdom citizen, that's what it's all about, right? Is understanding that as kingdom citizens, we live differently. We are in an upside down world. We're the ones that look like weirdos. But you change the world one soul at a time. Prime the pump this morning. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be here as a family, to worship you, to learn more about you. God, may we, may we show our love always in the way that we live, the way that we behave, by following your commands, by helping others understand what it means to be blessed. May we as a church family seek to change the world around us, making a difference in this community and beyond. Help us, God, to glorify you in everything that we do. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Can we help you this morning? David's got a song. If we can pray with you, if we can study with you, if we can encourage you, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is this morning, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.